believe it. How about you? And uh, I, I have to tell you, that is my, uh, that's got to be my all-time favorite song in the universe right there, man, because I do believe it. And uh, so, uh, Ron, if, if I die before you, sing that song at my funeral. Would you do that, man? Man, I tell you what, I do believe it. I do believe it. I believe the Lord, and I love the Lord. Love you. Glad you're here. Man, summer's on us, isn't it? I mean, right here in July, we're in the middle of summer. Christmas is right around the corner, so don't forget that. Now, I know that, that most of you, when you come in here on Sunday morning, you have been flat beaten down by the world, right? Come on, come on. Haven't you this past week? I mean, the world just kind of beats you up and eats you up and it chews you out and spits you out. And when you come into God's house on Sunday morning, when you walk through the door of Kavanaugh Church, what you need most is some encouragement. And some comfort. You, you need somebody just to wrap their arm around you and say, hey, you know what? I love you. You, you need to be encouraged when you come to God's house. You need your preacher, me, to give you an encouraging word from God so that you can go back out there and do it all again next week, right? Don't you? You ain't getting that this morning. Sorry, you, you just... You. Because you see, the greatest peril in your life is not necessarily your cranky boss or your insensitive spouse or the bills that you can't pay. No, I'm here to tell you the greatest peril in your life that you may be facing today is a calloused heart towards God. It may be some secret pet sin that you've been harboring in your life that you haven't brought before God and sought his forgiveness over. The greatest peril of your life may be the pretense in your life today. You're living a facade in front of everybody else. They think you're one way, but God sees what's on the inside. And if that is your life, let me tell you, when you walk into this place, it is not comfort that you need. What you need is a little confrontation. How many of y'all like the way this sermon's going so far, huh? <laughs> Church, I am so thankful and so glad that I serve a Savior who loves me and is gracious towards me and is long-suffering and is merciful Yet he loves me enough to confront me with what's messing up my life. And that's what Jesus is talking about in Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. I'm doing a little midsummer series on some of the parables that Jesus spoke in the Gospel of Luke. A parable is simply an earthly story that has a heavenly meaning to it. And with every parable that Jesus taught, there is one main message that he's trying to get across. So here in Luke chapter 13, Jesus tells a parable. But before we get to the parable, let's read about what's happening, the scenario before the parable. Here it is, Luke chapter 13, verse 1. There were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices, all right? Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this particular way? Jesus said, I tell you no. They, they were not worse sinners than all other Galileans. 
But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then Jesus went on to say, or what about those 18 who died when the tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think that they were more guilty than all others who were living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Then Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but he didn't find any fruit. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I have been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree, and I haven't found any fruit. Cut it down. Why are we allowing this tree just to use up the soil? Sir, the gardener replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it, and I'll fertilize it, and if it bears fruit next year, great. But if not, chop her down. That's Will's interpretation at the end. Just, just chop her down. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would find fruit in our lives today. And I pray, dear Lord, that as I try to speak on the outside, that you would speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as I read Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, there are two words that keep coming up in my heart and my mind. Two words that describe this passage. The first word is repent. Everybody say that with me on three. One, two, three. The second word is now. Say now. Now. Repent now. Jesus used the word repent often in his teaching. And it means to have not only a change of mind, but also to have a change of life, a change of attitude, a change of direction. So I've come up with a working definition for the word repent or repentance. Read this out loud with me, would you? Repentance is the holy disgust of our sin that leads us to depend on God to forgive and change us. Look at that again. What is repentance? It is a holy disgust that we have about our own sins, about our own messed up lives. It is a holy disgust that leads us to God, to depend on God, who is the only one who can forgive us and change us. So repentance is not just feeling bad about sin. Repentance is not just regretting that we got caught in our sin. Repentance is not just feeling bad about having to experience the result or consequences of our sin. No, repentance is a genuine disgust, being repulsed with our own sin. Why? Because we understand that it is an affront against God. And repentance isn't just trying to reform ourselves or take away our own sins because we cannot do that. Repentance always involves a change of direction in our thinking and in our lives. But you know as well as I do, we cannot do that on our own. Only God can forgive us. Only God can cleanse us. 
Only God can change us. And praise God, he has provided that forgiveness through the death, burial, and resurrection of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And I'm here to tell you, everyone needs to repent. Literally, there are two groups of people who need to repent. First of all, repentance is for non-believers. For people who are far from God. People who have never sought God for salvation. Non-believers need to repent. That's the only way you can be saved. That's the only way you can escape damnation and hellfire is to repent. So people who are far away from God, they need to repent. Acts chapter 3 verse 19 tells us that. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins can be wiped out and times of refreshing can come from the Lord. Well, I'll tell you, just from the looks of some of you, you need some refreshing times. And the only way we can have that refreshment, that fulfillment, that new life, the only way we can have vitality and eternal life is through repentance and turning to God. So non-believers need to repent. Everybody say amen. Amen. Sinners need to repent. Unbelievers need to repent. Those who are far away from God need to repent. Everybody would agree with that, right? But you know, repentance is also for believers. <laughs> it's not just for non-believers, it's for believers. There are times when Christians need to repent. We see this all through the Bible. In fact, in the book of Revelation, Jesus addressed seven churches with letters written directly to those churches. They were addressed to the pastor of the church to be read to the entire church. And three out of seven letters contained words for the members of the church to repent. Did you just get what I said? In three of the seven churches, Jesus is calling on the Christians inside the church to repent. One of those times is Revelation 3.19. Jesus said, those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest and repent. Just like a father loves his children, Jesus loves us. And when we stray from him and allow sin into our life, guess what? He is going to rebuke us, and he's going to discipline us. Why? That's what a loving daddy does. And so Jesus says to the church, be earnest and repent. Now, in our story in Luke chapter 13, there's just a couple of things I want to point out. Repent and now, all right? Repent and now. So the first thing I want to talk about is the necessity of repentance, the need for repentance. It is necessary for all of us to repent. In Luke chapter 13, some people came up to Jesus and wanted to tell Jesus a story or a fact about something that had just happened to get Jesus's knee-jerk reaction. What they were really trying to do is trick Jesus. But Jesus knew their thinking. Here's the story, verse number 1. Now there were some present at that time who came up to Jesus and told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed 
with their sacrifices. Now, I think most of you in this room have heard the word or the name Pontius Pilate before. He was the Roman governor over Judah, and he was the man who actually sentenced Jesus to death on a cross. But we know that Pilate was a very mean man. He was a very brutal man. And on this particular occasion, Pilate had slaughtered some Jewish people who were making their sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. Literally, he mingled their blood with the sacrifices that they were making to God. Now, Jesus knew exactly what these people were referring to when they spoke to him and told him this story. And Jesus knew kind of what they were getting at. And so Jesus said in verse number 2, he answered them, So do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they died this way, because they suffered this way? Now, you've got to understand the typical way of Jewish thinking back in those days towards a tragedy like this was surely those people were really bad sinners. That's why they suffered such a gruesome death. That They must have been extraordinary sinners for such a bad thing to happen to them is what happened to them. That was the typical thinking back in Jesus' day. You know what, church, look at me. People haven't changed in 2,000 years. Because typically when we hear of something as tragic and as gruesome as that, we might at least subconsciously think the same thing. They really must have deserved that. (laughs) You know, don't we? We're somewhat judgmental in that effect. The reason they had such a dreadful death is because they were extraordinary sinners. But notice Jesus went on to say in verse 3, I tell you, no. That thinking is not right. That's not correct. And then he said, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now, to me, that's somewhat of an odd response that Jesus gave to these people. Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking, but notice Jesus didn't say to them, unless you repent, you will die just like they died. He didn't say that. What Jesus said was, unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now, in the Greek, that is a much stronger word. It it doesn't mean just to die. That's what happened to these people. They died that day. Perish means more than just dying. Perish means spending eternity in hellfire. You will perish for all eternity. But Jesus wasn't finished with them. (laughs) He went on to say in verse 4, Since you brought up the subject, Jesus said, What about those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Do you think they were more guilty than all other people who were living in Jerusalem? Now, this may have been an accident that occurred in the building of that tower of Siloam when it was under construction. And the prevailing attitude among the Jews was that those people who died when that tower fell on them were extraordinary sinners because they died the way they died. Are you following me? Okay, shake your head if you understand. 
all right? But once again, Jesus shoots right through that thinking. He said in verse 5, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now, the point is not that these Galileans slain by Pilate or those who died in that tragic death under the Tower of Siloam when it was under construction. It's not that these people were extraordinary sinners. Actually, what they were were just ordinary sinners. <laughs> there wasn't anything extraordinary about their sin. They were just ordinary sinners like everyone else. The point that Jesus is making is their death came suddenly, unexpectedly, and quickly. And here's the deal. They were not prepared. You know what? We read about violence every day, don't we? If you read the paper this morning, you probably read about violence. We, we read about people who are killed in accidents every single day. And you know what? Accidents can happen. Right? Are y'all awake out there? I mean, yeah, we could die at any time. I do know this. If those Galileans would have known the peril that they were in, they would have taken actions before they went to the temple in Jerusalem that day. In fact, they might have thought, you know what? I heard Pontius Pilate's going to be there and he's got it out for some. I think I'll go this afternoon. To make my sacrifices. Or, or maybe I'll go tomorrow. But those people who had been working on the tower in Siloam, if they would have known beforehand that that tower was going to crumble that day, they would have at least been wearing a hard hat. Right? They would have taken precautions to protect themselves. And the point is this. If we knew, if we just knew the peril that was awaiting us, if we just knew that when we die, we are going to face God in eternity, and if we're not ready by preparing to meet him, if we just knew that we were going to spend eternity in hellfire, completely separated from God and goodness, if we just knew, surely we would do something about it. Surely we would repent and we would repent now. Guys, here's the deal. Death can come at any time, can't it? Death can come suddenly. Your life can be snuffed out in an instant. And if you have never repented and your life is taken from you, there is something much greater than death to fear. And that is eternal separation from God. Because Jesus said it right there. You will perish. The opposite of eternal life is spiritual death. So you know what? You need to repent. You need to repent. Eric, you're here first service. I had that flashback to the 60s, man. I'm having it again right now. It's kind of surging through my body. Is anybody alive in the 60s in this service? Okay. And, and still here to tell about it, yeah. I think, it was, I think it was 1969. I think Jeff, where's Jeff? Jeff, I think you've sung this song before. I wish, I wish we'd all been ready. You know, anybody remember that song, 1969? Wish, that, wish we'd all been ready. 
Man, that, that's what I think of when I'm thinking about this repentance right now. I do. I, I just wish everybody was ready. But you know what? Not everybody is going to be ready. That, that song goes on to talk about a, a man and a woman lying in bed. She heard something and turned her head, and he was gone. Two men walking up a hill, and all of a sudden, one of them was gone. I wish they'd all been ready because you know what? Jesus is coming again. And we need to be ready. The pastor I had when I was a little bitty boy, he drilled that into my head as a kid, man. I mean, he preached on hell just about every Sunday. And that we need to repent now. And church, I'm telling you, that's what needs to, you need to repent. You need to repent now. It's necessary that you repent. And the urgency is the second thing I want to talk about. You need to repent now. Really to underscore and to throw spotlight on the urgency of repentance, Jesus tells this parable. Verse number 6. He said, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but he didn't find any. So here's the scenario. We got a farmer who owns a vineyard. You grow grapes on your vineyard, and that's what was there. But in one place, he planted a fig tree because he wanted the fruit of the figs. How many of y'all eat figs? Okay. I've never really... I don't know that I've ever really had a fig. I know your, your brother planted a fig tree, and he's so proud of his fig tree. He showed us the fruit of the fig tree. Well, th- this farmer had a, a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And you know what? He was expecting what? Figs. Because that's, I mean, that's what it was there for. It was, it was not there for landscape purposes. It was not there for beauty. It wasn't there just to take up space. He wanted fruit. He wanted to eat the figs, but the problem was there was no fruit. Now, I'm going to do a little time out. Listen to this. You're going to miss the whole point of this message if you don't understand what Jesus was doing here. Jesus was saying to these people, you know what? I've examined your life, and I'm not seeing any fruit. These same people that brought these accusations or questions to Jesus. Jesus is looking back at them, and he tells a story about a vineyard, a man, a farmer who had a fig tree, no figs, there was no fruit, and Jesus is looking out there, there, and he says, you know what, I'm looking at your life, and I don't see any figs. I don't see any fruit. He expected fruit from their lives because they were religious people, but there was no fruit. Verse number 7, so... He said to the man who took care of the vineyard, the gardener there, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it just use up the soil? So That's a long time, isn't it? Three years to be looking for fruit, but there was no fruit found. And all the while, this tree was just wasting the ground and eating up the minerals and soaking up the the water. And so the farmer decides to cut it down. But the farmer's helper, the gardener there, whose job it was to tend the vines and take care of the trees, said, you know what? I think there's still hope for this tree. So he said in verse number 8, Sir, leave it alone for one more year and let me dig around it and fertilize it. Aren't you thankful for good gardeners? He was patient and merciful towards this fig tree. He didn't want to cut that fig tree down. 
Maybe he was the one who had planted it. Maybe he was the one who had been watching it grow and, and taking care of it. And you know what? He thought to himself, that's a good fig tree. I love that old fig tree. I don't want to chop the fig tree down. And so he pled for the fig tree. Aren't you thankful for Jesus? Who is long-suffering and merciful and patient with us when we don't bear fruit? And when we allow sin into our life and we don't immediately repent of that sin, that's what he's talking about here, the fruit of repentance. Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't just give up on us? Come on, people. Aren't you glad that he's long-suffering and merciful and grace exudes from him? But you know what? There comes a time when God's mercy ends and God's judgment begins. There comes a time when it's going to be too late to repent. A person dies or Jesus Christ returns, and then that person is going to have to face the wrath of God. Look at verse 9. If it bears fruit next year, great. If not, then cut it down. Again, there are two groups of people that need to repent. Repentance is for non-believers. And you remember what repentance is. Repentance is the holy disgust of our sin that leads us to depend upon God for his forgiveness and to change our lives. This means there's a person out there who is a sinner. They're living of the ways of this world. They are apart from God. They are dead in their trespasses and sin. They have never prayed the sinner's prayer, but one day they hear the good news of the gospel. Maybe a friend brings them to church and, and a preacher preaches on something like repentance. And you know what? A light comes on in their head and they realize that they are dead in sin and they need to repent. Or maybe they've got a good friend or a family member who loves them and cares enough for them that they're going to witness to them and say to them in love, you know what? I love you, but I see you messing up your life and I don't want you to die in your sins and go to hell. So here is God. God's plan of salvation. And that person is convicted. The sinner is convicted. You, you know how that feels if you're a Christian. God's spirit just kind of gets a hold of you. And man, you just, you can't let it go. You can't get rid of it. You can't fling it off. It wakes you up in the middle of the night. It's always on your mind. It's in your heart. You know you need to do something. I've had people tell me so many times, I don't know what it is, but I just need to do something. Well, I'll tell you what it is. You need to repent. Ask Jesus to forgive you. Ask Jesus to come into your life to save you. And you know what? That's the gift of salvation. That's what he's good at. The Lord is good at forgiving. When we repent, he forgives. 2 Peter 3.9 says, God is patient with you. God doesn't want anyone to perish, but God wants everyone to come to repentance. Hallelujah. I don't care how bad of a sinner you are. I don't care what you've done in the past. Jesus loves you. And he wants to forgive you. And dude, he will. He'll change you from the inside out. But you know, repentance is not just for non-believers. Repentance is also for believers. believers. 
Again, remember what repentance is. It is the holy disgust of our own sin that leads us to depend upon God to forgive us and to change us. You see, non-believers and believers repent of the same thing. Sin. As a believer, I repent because I know that my disobedience is separating me from a God who loves me and saves me. And if I persist in this area of disobedience, my heavenly Father is sooner or later going to correct me. Because he loves me. He's going to rebuke me. He's going to discipline me. Not because he's mean, (laughs) but because he loves me. You know what? That really is a commentary our world needs to hear today. Parents who really love their children discipline their children. Parents who really care about how their kids grow up will correct their kids. And discipline them. Well, I thought I'd get a bigger amen than that. Maybe I need to do a whole series on that, huh? Let me tell you, that's biblical. It's just, it's biblical. Revelation 3.19 again. Jesus said, those whom I love, my children that I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest and repent. So, for believers, true repentance is the broken heart that we have over anything in our lives that displeases or dishonors our Lord. And let me tell you, there is a sense of urgency to this because every day, every hour, every minute that we are out of fellowship with God is a waste of time. Let me give you a simple gauge for for spiritual maturity. I mean, how many, don't raise your hands, but how many of y'all kind of, I'm pretty mature. <laughs> do you know that spiritual maturity doesn't have anything to do with how much you read the Bible or how many times you come to church or what ministries you're involved in in church? Whatever you do, really, honestly. Spiritual maturity, in my opinion, comes down to this. The mark of spiritual maturity, how long does it take me to repent? Hmm? Suppose, suppose you're reading your Bible or you're listening to a message like this one or you're doing a Bible study and, and all of a sudden, man, just all of a sudden, bang, there's a, there's a light that comes on in your head and in your heart and the Holy Spirit is, is pointing out something that is not right in your life. And the Holy Spirit is, is telling you, here, here is a sin in your life. Here is a pet sin that you've been harboring. Here, here is a sin or an area of disobedience. The real question is, how long does it take you to deal with that before God? Honestly, how long does it take you to get to the place where you come clean before God? I got a, I got a repent-o-meter. I love meters, don't y'all? Here's my repent on meter. A double D came up with this for me. How long does it usually take you to repent? Is it just minutes? Or is it hours? Or is it days? Or is it weeks? 
Let me tell you what happens. What, what ends up happening for many believers is that they go along for, for days or weeks or months or even years living in this disobedience to God. They've got this sin in their life that they just don't come to grips with. And as days go by, their hearts become more callous towards God. And God is patient. He's loving He's full of grace, he's long-suffering, and he wants you to grow up to the point where you come before him and repent of that sin. Because really, that's what obedience is all about, isn't it? And you're proving to the, God, to the Lord God that there is fruit in your life because you come to the point of repentance. But here's this guy, and I mean, he's just been living with this pet sin, and, and he... he He won't confess it to God. He keeps living in it. And you know what? All of a sudden, God's grace and his mercy and his long-suffering comes to an end. Because there is coming a time in your life, if you're a Christian and you're harboring sin, that God is going to deal with your sin. There is coming a time when God is going to discipline you. There will come a time when God corrects you. And let me look at me. When that happens, if it comes to that, It ain't good. It's always bad. Here's this guy that's been running from God so long that when when it finally comes to the place that God has to deal with him over his sin that he has been unrepentant of, it turns into a crisis. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? It builds up and builds up and builds up, and then all of a sudden it blows up. And let me tell you, when it blows up, it not only messes up you, it messes up everybody around you. Just off the blue, I told this illustration in the first service. I guess I'll do it again in the second service, all right? So we can understand what I'm talking about. Here's this guy. And whether it be at work or wherever he was, he looked over at this lady and he had this thought. Because he's married and she's married and what he was thinking wasn't very good. You get it? And the Holy Spirit convicted him. Don't be thinking that about her, the Holy Spirit says. You need, you need to come clean. You need to repent of that right now and divert your eyes and not look at her anymore. Don't, don't let this go anywhere. But he doesn't do that because he likes the feeling that he's getting looking at this woman. And so he just brushes it under the, the carpet and he goes on and he keeps looking at her. And that leads to a conversation that leads to something else. And all of a sudden, here's this married man and this married woman. And all of a sudden, because this God didn't repent when the Holy Spirit told him to quit looking at her, they're having sex together. I'm telling you a true story because they came to my house. They don't go to this church. I know them from a different scenario here in town, but that is exactly what happened. They pull into my driveway, they get out of their car, and they come in and talk to me because they know I'm a preacher, and they find out that she's pregnant. And here's what they said. What do we do? (laughs) You see the mess? Do you see the mess? This is messing up a whole lot of lives and a whole lot of people 
for a whole lot of generations. You know what should have happened? Should have never come to that. When the Holy Spirit convicted him that very first time, let me tell you, he should have just prayed, Lord, please forgive me. Let me tell you, when it, when it builds up and builds up and we don't deal with it, sooner or later, it's going to blow up. You know what God is looking for in your life? The fruit of repentance. Look at verse 9. It's how it ends. It says, if this tree bears fruit next year, fine, we'll, we'll keep it. But if not, then let's cut it down. You know, look at me. This parable is open-ended. We don't know what happened to the tree, do we? We, we, we don't know what happened to the fig tree. Did, did all of the special attention it received during that one year pay off? I mean, all the digging, all the fertilizing, all the water, all the pampering, did it pay off? Was there fruit? Was the tree spared? Or was it cut down? We don't know. I mean, we, we can't answer the question, what happened to the tree? But we can answer the question, what happened to me? You get to answer that. Heavenly Father.